0: Elizabeth Slattery and I'm Tiffany Bates and welcome to SCOTUS 101 where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week we're talking about repealing the Second Amendment, shackling
1: defendants and hot dogs <laughs> and we'll interview President of the National Constitution Center Jeff Rosen about his new book on Chief Justice Taft.
0: So retired Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens wants to repeal the Second Amendment. Shocking. Yeah. He wrote an op-ed for the New York Times this week saying that a repeal would, quote, "...eliminate the only legal rule that protects sellers of firearms in the United States." Unlike every other market in the world, it would make our school children safer than they have been since 2008, which he's referring to the court's decision in uh, District of Columbia versus Heller. So this isn't the first time Justice Stevens has proposed uh, this amendment to the Constitution. He wrote a book in 2014, not that long after he stepped down from the court, proposing six amendments, uh, including banning capital punishment, allowing Congress and the states to impose reasonable limits on campaign spending and restricting the the second amendment to bear arms to state militias. Do do we still have state militias? Is that a thing? Yeah. So I wasn't sure. So I I did a little Google and I found a 2010 heritage paper on this (laughs) very topic by our vice president uh, of the uh, Defense Institute, James Carafano. So apparently there are at least 23 state militias as of uh, 2010. Interesting. Maybe I will join a state militia, (laughs) although I don't think D.C.
1: has one. Probably not. Uh, Just a guess. So in other news, Congress passed the Cloud Act, which could affect the disposition of the Microsoft versus United States case. So listeners will remember that the issue in Microsoft is whether the company has to turn over information they have stored on a server in Ireland Under the Stored Communications Act. Now, the Cloud Act amends the law to say if the government gets a warrant, the provider must turn over material in their quote, possession, custody, or control, regardless of whether such communication, record, or other information is located within or outside of the United States. The Solicitor General sent a letter to the court notifying them of this change in the law, and they said the government is evaluating how this affects the current case
0: and that it will soon file a supplemental material. So maybe they won't be deciding the Microsoft case after all. Yeah, who knows? So the court also issued one opinion this week. Tiffany, you want to tell us a little about it?
1: Yes, in a thrilling case, um, Hall v. Hall, which involves a complicated family dispute over property in the Virgin Islands, That resulted in several lawsuits between siblings Elsa and Samuel Hall. So the district court consolidated all of these suits under federal rule of civil procedure 42A. And in one of the consolidated cases, the district court found for Elsa and she immediately appealed. But then the Third Circuit dismissed the appeal, saying that since the other consolidated cases were not yet resolved, she couldn't do that. But the court unanimously reversed, holding that when one of several cases consolidated under Rule 42 is decided, the losing party has an immediate right to appeal regardless of whether any other consolidated cases are still pending. So the court went through the history of Rule 42A and said that it makes clear that one of the multiple consolidated cases under the rule retains its independent character at least to the extent that it is appealable
0: when it's resolved. So... Kind of a dry sounding case, but probably has uh, implications for the administration of of the law across the country. Anyway, the court also heard oral arguments this week in several cases. One is United States versus Sanchez Gomez, which we've previously discussed on the podcast. This case deals with the federal district court in Southern California and its policy of shackling all criminal defendants during pretrial proceedings that are not in front of a jury. So the court adopted this policy on the advice of the U.S. Marshals Service after there were several instances of courtroom disturbances, including a brawl between two defendants and a stabbing. Oh, my. Yeah. (laughs) About half of the federal courts have some sort of shackling policy, such as using leg restraints. Uh, The California district court here had a five-point policy that included handcuffs, leg irons, and chains. So the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decided that this policy violates the Constitution. And at the Supreme Court, the federal government argued that the appeals court didn't have the authority to review this policy because it wasn't a final order subject to review. Also, by the time the court, the Court of Appeals that is ruled, the defendants had been convicted and they didn't seek to overturn their convictions. So at the argument this week, Justice Breyer asked, well, what if the policy was that— Uh, The defendant would be bound and gagged in body armor and hung upside down. Could they challenge that order? (laughs) And Justice Kennedy suggested defendants uh, maybe should bring a civil class action suit against uh, the Marshal Service. And then Justice Alito wanted to know if somebody could immediately appeal shackling in the courtroom, could that apply to shackling in prisons? And the lawyer for the challengers responded that the courtroom is a sacred space and judges should ensure the dignity, autonomy and liberty of defendants.
1: Yeah, I don't. Isn't the point like to take away their, their liberty, liberty in these situations? And also, like, there's no stabbing in sacred places. So, <laughs> I mean, this seems like a pretty sensible, yeah. sensible thing to prevent that. So we'll see what happens there. <laughs> the court also heard argument in Benisek versus Limone, which could also be titled partisan gerrymandering, the sequel. Um, but this time, it's the Republicans who brought the challenge. So a couple of months ago, the court heard a challenge to Wisconsin's entire redistricting map, but only one Maryland district is being challenged in this case. Um, Republican Congressman Roscoe Bartlett, who served for 10 terms in Congress, lost his election to Democrat John Delaney, who's now running for president in 2020. Uh, there's a lot of wacky candidates out of Maryland. I know you live there, but I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but this happened after the Democratic state legislature redrew Maryland's map to include part of the D.C. suburbs, which brought tens of thousands of Democrats into his district. So unlike the Wisconsin case, the plaintiffs, in this case, have made a First Amendment retaliation claim. They claim the Democrats specifically intended to dilute the votes of Republicans because of their support for Republican candidates in the past. And the Democrats were pretty candid and open about their motives in doing just that. But the major question is what exactly the plaintiffs need to show to for their case to continue.
0: So... I saw on Twitter that there were protesters outside of the court uh, for this case, and lots of them had cutouts of the different Maryland districts that had yeah. googly eyes. <laughs> With eyeballs. Yeah. yeah. I don't know the, the exactly the point of that, but they were kind of cute. I guess cute. to show how gerrymandered the districts are because they are you know, very, very interestingly drawn. Yeah, but I don't know the point of the eyeballs. (laughs) Oh, the eyeballs. Yeah, I don't know. Give them personality. I I like googly (laughs) eyes. Let's put them on everything. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Stephen Colbert recently interviewed Justice Ginsburg about her workout routine, and a pressing question came up in the course of their discussion. Is a hot dog a sandwich? So, Tiffany, I know you have a different view on this for me, but first, let's agree to the definition of a sandwich. It's two pieces of bread— with some kind of filling, whether it's meat, cheese, or a vegetable, or it's a sliced roll with a filling. No. Okay. Where'd you get this definition? Webster's third? Um, actually, I got it from the Scalia-approved American Heritage Dictionary. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, I think
1: that definition is too generic. I would add that it has to have a horizontal orientation. <laughs> Because otherwise, a taco could be a sandwich under that definition. Like the bread, no matter if it's separated or not, has to be roughly at the top and the bottom. None of this like side business, like a hot dog. Also, (laughs) sandwiches can usually be eaten hot or cold. And you're a monster if you would eat a cold hot dog.
0: Okay, well, I agree with that. But I have a couple of points to make in defense of the hot dog as a sandwich. So first off... We can agree that an Italian sub and a hoagie—that those are types of sandwiches, right? Yes. And they're okay, also okay. Then a hot dog is also a sandwich. They're no. basically the same kind of roll. <laughs> to, to say otherwise is just anti-German bias, since the hot dog or the frankfurter originated in Germany. Okay. Second thing: the sandwich is named for John Montague, Fourth Earl of Sandwich, who wanted something he could eat while playing cards that wouldn't require silverware, and it wouldn't get his hands greasy, you know, so that his cards would get dirty. And I think a hot dog would certainly be something you could eat with one hand while playing cards. Yeah, but that that is irrelevant
1: to the definition. All the (laughs) things you mentioned are, you know, mostly horizontal. And a hot dog, if you like— Okay, but what about a wrap?
0: No, a wrap is not a sandwich either. What about a Philly cheesesteak? I mean, you couldn't— you couldn't eat that horizontally. Everything would fall okay. out. Yes, it's primarily horizontal, uh, though. Oh, it okay. It is not okay. vertical. Well, all this talk about hot dogs makes me want to go to a baseball game. <laughs> Indeed. We we should take a trip to the Nationals
1: and watch the, the running of the presidents, including William Taft, who we recently talked
0: about, with Jeff Rosen. Jeff Rosen is the head of the National Constitution Center, a law professor at George Washington, and author of the forthcoming book, on Chief Justice Taft. He also hosts the We the People podcast for the National Constitution Center. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Jeff.
2: Thank you, it's wonderful to be here.
0: So as I mentioned, you head up the the National Constitution Center based in Philadelphia. Uh, Tell us about the purpose of the center and some of the work that you all do.
2: The center was founded during the bicentennial of the Constitution by Congress, and it's a private nonprofit with the inspiring mission to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And we fulfill that by bringing together the best conservative and liberal voices to debate every aspect of the Constitution on all media platforms. So as you said, we have this great We the People podcast where every week I call up top liberal and conservative scholars to debate the constitutional issue of the week. We have this amazing interactive Constitution that I want your <laughs> listeners to download. It's gotten 15 million hits. It's wow. co-sponsored by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, and they've nominated scholars to write about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. And finally, we're this beautiful museum of We the People in Philadelphia on Independence March. All right across from Independence Hall where the Constitution was drafted, and it's just this inspiring place where learners of all ages can come and be inspired about the Constitution.
1: And you also have a Constitution Drafting Lab. Tell us about how that works.
2: It's co-hosted by Google, and it's this wonderful tool which listeners can check out online uh, if you Google Constitution Center uh, rights around the world. And you can click on any part of the Constitution, say the First Amendment, and see all other countries that have versions of the First Amendment and compare the text. Or if you click on the Fourth Amendment, you find that when General MacArthur wrote the Japanese Constitution, he cut and pasted the language word for word, so it's <laughs> almost exactly the same, whereas the Russian Fourth Amendment looks nothing like ours, fa- on the Russian Fourth Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> and we've had a couple great conferences where drafters around the world come and use their texts and try to draft constitutional amendments. It's really exciting.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. So early in your career, you clerked for Judge Abner uh, Mikva on the D.C. Circuit. Tell us about him and what it was like clerking for him.
2: Well, it was a long time ago, but it was a great privilege. Uh, Judge Mikva was one of the only public servants to have served in all three branches of government. He was chief judge of the D.C. Circuit. He was a congressman from Illinois, and he became White House counsel under Bill Clinton when he was running for Congress in Illinois in uh, Hasidic neighborhoods. His slogan was, mikvah stands for a clean government, which some of your (laughs) listeners will get. But a mikvah is a ritual bath in the Jewish tradition. And uh, he was a wonderful man, and it was really inspiring to clerk for him.
0: And he actually, he left the bench to go be White House counsel, right?
2: He did. He he felt like he did his service and he really, he believed so strongly in the entire uh, government and he really wanted to serve uh, the executive branch as well. That's wonderful. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: turning to the subject of your new book uh, about Chief Justice Taft, which is fantastic. Thank you. I highly recommend it. What's the most interesting thing you learned about Taft while writing this book?
2: I was absolutely fascinated to learn that he was our most judicial president and presidential chief justice. Like many people, I didn't know much about Taft, uh, aside from his weight. Uh, And (laughs) I learned there that even that is taken out of context, that far from being large for most of his career, he lost 75 pounds on a paleo diet after he left the White House uh, just because he hated being president. And he was actually... uh, trim and and fit for 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 much of his career, but the the most interesting thing I learned is that he 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 was a former sixth circuit judge who pined to be on the supreme Court his <laughs> His father had said to be chief justice is more than to be president in my estimation. He reluctantly ran for the presidency because Theodore Roosevelt and his wife made him do it, and as president, he approached every decision in constitutional terms, asking. Uh, does the Constitution explicitly allow this action, unlike his predecessor, Roosevelt, who said the president could do anything the Constitution didn't forbid? Mm -hmm. And that led to his crusade to put all of Roosevelt's activist executive orders on firm grounds by persuading Congress to enact them from the environment to tariff policy to international and foreign uh, policy. And then he breaches with Roosevelt over these actions and fights the election of 1912 as a crusade to defend the Constitution against what he perceives as populist threats by the demagogues Roosevelt and Wilson, who insist that the president is a steward of the people who gets their power directly from the people he loses. But then he goes on to become one of our most distinguished chief justices because of his incredible administrative skill. He establishes the judicial branch as an effective functioning challenge to the uh, presidency and Congress. He builds the Supreme Court building, he gives the Supreme Court control over its own docket, and he's admired by uh, our current Chief Justice John Roberts, as well as by many others. So I think he is an inspiration for Uh, Both uh, conservatives, liberals and libertarians who are concerned that the presidency has exceeded its constitutional bounds. And of course, from President Obama to President George W. Bush to our current president, uh, both sides have argued that the presidency has, uh, in its imperial aspirations, transcended the boundaries the framers envisioned. Taft presaged these criticisms, and if you want an example of a president who's guided by the Constitution above all, please turn to William Howard Taft.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So as you alluded, uh, he had several impressive uh, positions throughout his career. He was president, chief justice, he was secretary of war, he was the solicitor general, um, he had posts in Cuba and the Philippines. Which do you think he was best at, and, and which do you think was his favorite
2: position? Well, his favorite was certainly chief because he <laughs> pined for it, and what an amazing—I st- mean, to, to yeah. aspire to that is is tough enough, but and then to have set it up so masterfully. He, he when he's president, he has to choose a chief justice. And he's going to choose Charles Evans Hughes, who everyone agrees is the most dynamic, the best candidate. But he can't bring himself to do it because Hughes is only 48 and he's really healthy. <laughs> so he appoints a 65-year-old Southern Democrat. And the only reason for it is because he's hoping uh, Douglas uh, Edward White will uh, die before, you know, in time for Taft to replace him. And happily for Taft and unhappily for White, that finally happens. And he he gets the appointment. And and he's he's just, it's an example of when the perfect job finds the the right candidate. Um it was just beautiful. And, and Justice Louis Brandeis, who had been a great opponent of Taft uh, before they both joined the bench, asked Felix Frankfurter, how is it possible that someone who is so bad as president is so good as an administrative officer? And Frankfurter said it's because he hated being president and chief justice is all happiness for him, which was a beautiful <laughs> way of putting it.
1: You write about how Taft approached his presidency, not as a politician, but as a judge. And so what are what are the main takeaways from how that affected mostly his presidency um, and why he's kind of remembered as a a mediocre president while he's remembered as, you know, the great, a great chief
2: justice. I think mediocre is fair. He's sort of right in the middle on most of the surveys (laughs) around 22. Not, not the best, not the worst, but like Goldilocks in the, in the middle. Uh, and I think w- what he teaches us is that his vision, which is that the president cannot be, uh, play a part for popularity, as he put it. He told Archie Butts, I will not play a part for popularity. If the people disagree with my actions, so be it. That may be very principled for a judge, but it's not a great stance for a president. A president has to exercise some popular leadership. And Taft's passivity in battles over the tariff, for example, which is so relevant for today, was very principled in the sense that he felt that Congress had to lower the tariff. It wasn't up to the president. and He could propose, but it was he didn't want to interfere with legislative determinations. And by being completely passive, he basically got rolled and allowed a stand pat protectionists in Congress to water down his revision bill. So the final product satisfied no one. Um, so uh, the founder's conception of a presidency occupied by wise statesmen, that was their vision, who would uh, filter popular passions and encourage thoughtful deliberations is all very well, and Taft really tried to embody that. But especially in the progressive era, when new technologies like the initiative and referendum are making direct democracy possible, and the uh, 17th Amendment is allowing the direct election of senators, the founders' conception was no longer consistent with effective popular leadership. So that that was why he's viewed as mediocre, but but on the other hand it really is meaningful and important nowadays, especially that both sides are recognizing the dangers of direct democracy. We're understanding that the founders created not a direct democracy but a representative republic that Madison's central concern was that factions which he defined as majorities governed by passion rather than reason would not serve the public good. Uh, All of this is being exacerbated by social media. Suddenly, the Taftian conception of a president that is like the Senate, a sort of uh, filter on popular passions is more relevant than ever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So as you mentioned, Taft set his sights on becoming chief justice early in his career, and he had a few opportunities to become a justice that he passed on. So tell us a little bit about how he achieved his, his lifelong dream of becoming the chief justice.
2: Well, as you say, he really wanted to accept Theodore Roosevelt's repeated offers to be on the Supreme Court. But they came while he was serving as governor of the Philippines. And you asked what his best job was. His best was chief, but his second best was governor. He was surprisingly effective there because he was a kind of solon, a constitution giver, who, unconstrained by the need for popular approval, could make laws, create an education system, uh, bring in uh, the Filipino people into government— And he was so revered that when he, you know, threatened to leave to take a Supreme Court post or to become Secretary of War, the crowds are demonstrating, queremos Taft, we want Taft. It's (laughs) it's the only popular demonstrations that he ever experienced in his life. So basically, he felt he had a great sense of duty, and he felt that he had a duty to to the Filipino people to stay there. And he turned down the offers of Roosevelt with the greatest reluctance. Roosevelt sort of petulantly accepted the refusals. Uh, and he had to wait until he became chief. And and, and he set that up in the, in the way that I described, basically by appointing the, the oldest and least healthy chief that he could possibly <laughs> find in the hope that uh, he would eventually succeed him. And then it came time for President Harding to fill the slot. And he still had to lobby hard. And at that point, he was enjoying bipartisan popularity based on his support of international courts, which Wilsonian internationalists liked a lot, as well as his unexpected support for labor during the war, uh, which helped redeem his reputation as the father of injunctions he'd been perceived as an anti-labor judge so he was almost confirmed unanimously and he was extremely happy
1: one of the most interesting things i learned from reading your book was about taft's reverence for the constitution and his devotion to departmentalism so how did this play out in his presidency and his tenure as chief justice
2: Departmentalism a great way to put it, and he put it that way, and, and he, his speeches as president read like judicial opinions. And they played out centrally by his only performing the roles that he thought the Constitution explicitly authorized. So the most dramatic example is foreign policy. He's the first president since— um, I guess, Buchanan, according to Roosevelt, to refuse to send troops over the border, in this case, the Mexican border, because he thought Congress alone had the power to uh, declare war and the president couldn't do it on his own. Uh, His whole party is clamoring for troops. A more pandering president would have done it, but he thinks the Constitution forbids it. In this sense, he's different from Polk, who had sent troops over the border insisting that Mexico acted first, provoking a young congressman, Abraham Lincoln, to demand that Polk identify the precise spot where the Mexican troops had crossed the border, earning him the, link, the nickname Spotty Lincoln. So <laughs> so in foreign policy, that's tremendously impressive. Um, he, he, he does pass the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, which would have been the greatest achievement of his presidency, but the Canadian voters ultimately reject it because of a Gaff that he made, uh, Michael Kinsley, the the great journalist said in D.C. A, a gaff is when you tell the truth. And <laughs> Taft wrote to Roosevelt, boy, if the Canadians sign this opinion, uh, they're going to basically be an adjunct to the U.S. because it's going to favor our trade so much. And that went viral on the wires. And in you know, a Brexit-like vote, the Canadian voters rejected it. So that was his his foreign policy. Um, when it came to the legislation, it's so dramatic what he did with the tariff. So he campaigns. The central the Republican platform is waffling on the issue because the party is divided. Per, per Progressive Republicans want to lower the tariff, which favors East, Eastern manufacturers over Western farmers. Uh, there are a few free traders. Those are in the a Democratic Party, led by agrarian farmers, and then the Stan Pat Republicans, who like the manufacturers, want to raise the tariffs. So the platform straddles it and said we want a tariff to raise revenue, but not for protective purposes, which was the position Alexander Hamilton had taken in his report on manufacturers, where he defended a tariff as a way of raising revenue. Uh, but so Taft um, comes time he he campaigns, he says. I will immediately call Congress into a special session to lower the tariff. That's exactly what he does in his inaugural address. He said, I promised I'm going to do it, and I do it. A few days later, he calls this special session, and he sends a 300-word message to Congress. And all the people are waiting expectantly for this message. They think it's going to be a great state paper. And he said, as I said in my inaugural address, I think you should lower the tariff. If you want any more information, read what I said in my inaugural address. (laughs) And they're just stunned. They can't believe that he would be so legalistic about it. But he was acting like a judge rather than a politician and assumed they could they could read what he said, and the result was the kind of muddled bill uh, that uh, resulted. And he's always citing the Constitution as authorizations for his actions. He's one of the last presidents, repeatedly and explicitly, to veto bills on constitutional grounds. It was uh, 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 Grover Cleveland was the veto president, but it was contested during the early Republic whether a president could veto bills on constitutional or and or policy grounds, and Taft maintains the old tradition that constitutional vetoes are necessary, and he vetoes a bill involving interstate uh, transport of liquor on his last day in office in March uh, 1912 because he thinks that it violates the Commerce Clause <laughs> of the Constitution. He's a dream for wonks of all kind, which I hope all listeners to this great podcast are, like are we the people listeners, um, in that he justifies his decisions as president by pointing to the precise clause of the Constitution that justifies the action that The constitutionalists in Congress who have introduced a bill demanding that the president do that, Taft should be their hero because that's exactly (laughs) what he did. And if you're really uh, uh, totally devoted to the constitutionalist cause, his speeches are collected in eight volumes and you can get them. And they're not easy reading, but they reward uh, the the lover of the Constitution just because he's so precise, always about demanding explicit authority for presidential actions.
0: That's wonderful. So uh, a little light reading. Yeah. Yes, it is. I tried
2: to distill it to make it a little jo- jollier. <laughs> uh,
0: so as Chief Justice, Taft had a clear vision for the court, and he brought about several changes, and you've alluded to a few of these. Uh, can you tell us about what you think were the most significant changes under his leadership?
2: The most tangible one is building the Temple of Justice, commissioning Cass Gilbert to build this had a majestic building for the court that would be uh, had to combine the beauty of the Lincoln Memorial which Gilbert uh, built with the practicality of a modern office building and before that the court had met in the basement of the Capitol, and it was uh, awkward and the justices had no robing rooms they had to change in the view of gawking spectators <laughs> and Taft thought that this majestic building would create the judicial branch as a symbolic equal of the presidency and uh, the legislative branch and Justices and citizens to this day are grateful for his vision, as was Chief Justice Hughes when he dedicated the Supreme Court building. He said we're indebted more than anyone else to Chief Justice Taft and his intelligent persistence. Second, he uh, passed the Judiciary Act of 1925. Uh, 20, or 25, yeah.
0: Yes. 25. Uh, 25. So. We'll, we'll fact check Thank that. Thank you, and, <laughs> and, and save me if
2: I've gotten it wrong, But um, which gave the court control over its own docket. And that was a huge change. Before that, the court had to hear any uh, cases that were presented to it, which led to a lot of technical opinions about uncontroversial matters that no one cared much about. <laughs> and by allowing the court to focus on important constitutional questions or disputed areas of federal law— Taft dramatically uh, reduced uh, the number of cases the court heard and also their significance. Um, But this act had an inadvertent effect. Taft was the greatest chief since Marshall in terms of building consensus. He really thought majority uh, uh, opinions were important. He wanted to suppress dissent, including his own, in the interests of the court's institutional legitimacy. And during the early part of his tenure, the unanimity rate was at an all-time high, uh, 80% or so. Um, and this was a testament to his collegial leadership. After the Judiciary Act passed, the unanimity rate declined because the cases became more controversial, and Mm -hmm. we're seeing that to this day, that once uh, you're taking cases on which the lower courts disagree, uh, unanimity is harder to achieve. And then his final really important uh, reform was the Judges Act that created – uh, the, the circuit courts and what he considered a sort of flying squadron of district judges who could uh, ride circuit and take on the court's administrative burden. The federal courts were very overburdened by prohibition, which was mm-hmm. clogged. The war on booze was clogging the courts. And by increasing the number of judges and also the speed with which they disposed of opinions, he made the court a fully modern administrative efficient branch, which allowed it to protect property rights def- enforce constitutional boundaries and to defend individual liberty which he thought was incredibly important uh, Henry Stimson who's the Secretary of War and served uh, Taft Truman Roosevelt and Hoover said that out of all of them Taft was the best administrator and that may sound like a wonky skill but it turns out to be incredibly important as Chief Justice in allowing him to uh, build up the the third branch. Um, so in that sense, I think he's even underrated as chief. A 1993 survey put him after Marshall, uh, Hughes, Warren, and Stone. And I think that he would should be in the top three or so. He was really one of the most effective chiefs since Marshall, and uh, I'm trying to give him his due.
1: <laughs> what do you think is the best opinion Taft wrote? It could be a majority, concurrence, dissent—
2: it's, I suppose his most admired is Myers, the executive power decision defending the unitary executive, which has been cited by uh, folks on both sides— um, in insisting that the president has complete power to fire his uh, subordinates, and that power can't be constrained by Congress. And in that opinion, Taft effectively recognized the unconstitutionality of the Tenure in Office Act, which had been used to impeach Andrew Johnson, and although he was ultimately acquitted. The counterargument is that Justice Brandeis, my other hero, who had, the, the last guy I wrote a book about, said in the, in the Humphrey's executor's case that Taft had oversimplified executive power and that quasi-independent agents like the Federal Trade Commission and so forth should be able to be insulated from executive firing. So it's it's an extremely important and influential opinion, although it has its uh, uh, critics.
0: So can you clear something up for us? Is it true that Taft got stuck in a bathtub?
2: He almost certainly didn't get stuck in a bathtub. <laughs> the source for that scurrilous rumor is Ike Hoover, who is the longtime White House usher, but uh, it hasn't been confirmed by any other source. And Archie Butt, his aide, is always writing about him. And in Butt's account, he's always getting in and out of – he did seem to like to take baths. So he got in and out of baths a lot and was dressing, but he, um, he didn't seem to get stuck in one. The, but people were obsessed with Taft and baths. It became a pop cultural <laughs> meme and citizens of Glenwood – Colorado Glenwood Springs invite him to put on a specially constructed bathing costume so they can watch him bathe and people are always making <laughs> cruel jokes about Taft and baths and then finally when he leaves the presidency he does in fact overflow a bathtub in New Jersey and the water goes on the diners below and everyone has a good laugh about it and Taft <laughs> looks at the ocean the next day and says someday I'll get a piece of that and it won't overflow anymore so it, it's 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 you know it it is sad, and it's it's weightism, and it is, um would not be tolerated today, mm-hmm. and it's a sign of uh, the cruelty and uh, sort of brutality of pop culture that even in his day, Taft was reduced to his appearance. The other thing that's quite striking is that Taft had a disorder. We would now call it called obstructive sleep apnea. When he was mm-hmm. really heavy, he couldn't sleep through the night, and every few minutes he would jar awake. Uh, with a start. And as a result, he would just fall asleep in public all the time Mm -hmm. at speeches at the opera and meetings with the chief justice and his aides would have to prod him awake. Uh, Once he lost the weight, he lost the sleep apnea and he was alert and focused. I think now we would recognize this as a disability and have sympathy for it then people just made fun of him. And he, he dealt with it well. He did tell lots of good jokes on himself and his <laughs> the jokes are legion in, in The Chief Magistrate and His Powers, which is a wonderful book that I recommend to your listeners. It's one of the best books on the presidency and the Constitution ever written. And very clearly when Taft is about to teach at Yale, he sets out his lectures on what the president's powers are. But he also tells some good jokes, including – a woman who comes asking that her son be admitted to West Point despite the fact that he has some physical shortcomings. Taft, a secretary of war says, okay, he can be admitted. And the woman looks at him gratefully and she blurts out, Mr. Secretary, you're not half as fat as they say you are. <laughs> so he, you know, he tells that himself. And then there's the even more there were a bunch of them, uh, but the most famous one is when he, he tells uh, Secretary Stimson that he's had a long horseback ride up the mountain on a foreign trip, and Stimson cables famously, "How is the horse?" But um, <laughs> so so he, he you know he learned to mask the the pain of being made fun of through mm-hmm. humor, and he was good humored, but it couldn't have been fun, and uh, it's good that today we would not tolerate that sort of thing.
1: So one final question, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? And um, you can't say Taft. Oh, no, I, I won't say Taft.
2: <laughs> you know, I, I I would say Brandeis, though, because I, I believe that Brandeis is the greatest prophet of free speech and privacy in the 20th century, as well as the greatest critic of the curse of bigness in business and government since Thomas Jefferson. So I would just want, I would want to ask him to channel his wisdom and critique of business on all the modern questions that are facing us. But this is the one I would ask him, Justice as Brandeis. Uh, the framers believed that Ameri- the American Republic would only survive with slow, thoughtful deliberation on, over time. In your Whitney opinion, you said that uh, th- uh, those who... Uh, created our republic, believed that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties and that in its government the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. Justice Brandeis, today with social media technology and 24 7 warp speed dialogue, the deliberation that you and Jefferson and the founders praised is under siege. Justice Brandeis, how can we revive that vision of? a uh, thoughtful deliberation for the future of the American republic and i would be very eager for his wisdom on that answer <laughs> that's great <laughs> definitely
0: Well, we'll wrap up with a round of supreme trivia taft edition all right are you ready for a few questions i
2: hope so <laughs>
0: <laughs> we tried to avoid getting these from your book oh can, can i make up wrong <laughs> first question okay which sitting supreme court justice lobbied president harrison to appoint taft to the 6th circuit And I can give you a hint if you'd like. Please do. He was from uh, a neighboring state of Taft's home state of Ohio.
2: This is just going to be hopeless. I'm going to tank all of these questions.
0: (laughs) It was uh, John Marshall Harlan Uh, from Kentucky, my home state.
2: And uh, okay, I'll just redeem myself by both expressing my admiration for Justice Harlan and the fact that he and Taft were great. Friends and Harlan channeled Taft's dissent in um, his antitrust dissents. And it's a great coalescence of uh, just as we think of as a a great uh, progressive uh, civil libertarian and. And Taft, the constitutionalist.
0: So apparently Taft got to know Harlan when he was the Solicitor General, which was a position that he didn't entirely enjoy because he had been a state court judge. And I don't think he liked uh, being back on the litigator side so much. But uh, we found that in a, a book called The Bully Pulpit, which is about Roosevelt and Taft.
2: The Bully Pulpit is wonderful. It's by Doris Kearns Goodwin. And as you say, he's so was anxious about his t- time as Solicitor General that he worried that the justices were writing notes and eating lunch whenever he talked. <laughs> but he won most of his cases. He had a really great record. And the final thing he did is SG. I'm just going to give you my trivia because I think yeah. I'm going to tank, tank yours. <laughs> great. He, he introduced the, in the Solicitor General's office the practice of confessing error, which is this noble practice where if the SG thinks the government has made a constitutional mistake in a past case, then he's supposed to tell the court in the future.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah. That fits in really well with um, his views about the Constitution. Yeah. Very much so, yeah. Okay, next question. Uh-oh. How did Taft meet his wife, Nellie?
2: Ah, uh, a, at, a, at a skating party or bobsledding <laughs> party. <laughs> yes. and, and they and then they talked, they read Trollope together and they bonded over their shared love of books. Mrs. Taft was very intelligent and wanted to be a school teacher. And uh, his brother said, you know, she laughs at your jokes. I think she may be in love with you. And then they <laughs> did amateur theatricals together. And uh, he asked her to marry her. And it was such a beautiful love story. He was so devoted to her. And when she got sick, she had a terrible stroke. After a year in the Oval Office, he tenderly nursed her back to health and would help her speak again. And, and was so devoted to her that one of his last words when he was dying where he would just say, darling, you know, he just wanted his wife to be next to him. So it was oh. a great love story.
0: It's really sweet. Yeah. Next question: What sports tradition did President Taft
2: start? Well, isn't there this seventh inning stretch thing?
0: That yeah, he, he did he, start he that. They
2: did, did start it. I, I'm not. A,
0: There's a bigger one though. The uh, throwing out the first pitch of the o- opening day game uh, for the Washington baseball team.
2: Wonderful, and it's for that reason that the Nationals recently added Taft to their pantheon of racing presidents. Yes. And they have this scampering polyurethane Taft who goes around terrifying (laughs) spectators.
1: (laughs) He's quite a sight to behold. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Okay, next up. Following the success of the teddy bear, named for Teddy Roosevelt, mm. what stuffed yeah. animal did toy manufacturers <laughs> name after Taft?
2: That's so great. Was it a possum or something like that? It was <laughs> yes. terrifying, and was, children would cry when they got it. It's
1: <laughs> Billy Possum. <laughs> Billy
2: Possum. They would get the possum and start weeping. Yes. Hysterically, yes. it was not a successful uh, marketing device.
1: Yes, it unsurprisingly did not sell well. No. Um, I looked up pictures earlier today, and it is
0: terrifying. Yeah. I'm glad they, they have gone away.
2: <laughs> oh, Daddy, can I have a Taft possum? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: One final question. Yes, as Chief Justice, how many cases did Taft recuse himself from?
2: Uh, I, I'm just is there I, w- there's supposed to be a Taft lifeline I should call John- Jonathan <laughs> Lurie, who wrote a great uh, biography of him. not not very many. Yeah, that's one, correct. Just one just one. Yeah, one,
0: and the case was Biddle versus Perovich in 1927. Brought Bay, a murderer whose death sentence Taft had commuted while he was president, and the man later sued, arguing that the president does not have the power to commute a death sentence without the defendant's consent. And it seems like an interesting strategy when he was trying to get out of jail. <laughs> uh, but naturally, Taft uh, recused himself. But it's interesting to think today. You know, if there were. A former president who was on the Supreme Court, they would probably have to recuse in a lot of cases. Uh,
2: That's so fascinating. You're absolutely right. I mean, Justice Kagan is still recusing herself right. from cases that she was tangentially involved in as SG. You, it would be, you know, it's a really interesting question. Could there was there had been talk of if uh, Hillary Clinton had won, she might have appointed uh, Barack Obama to the Supreme Court. Could he even have heard most of those Supreme yeah. cases? <laughs> really, really interesting question.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you did a great job in trivia, and thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for learning with me about William Howard Taft.
0: Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS
1: 101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.